Take your Bibles this evening and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, looking at verses 8 and 9 this evening. Last time we were together in Philippians 4, we considered the nature of prayer as a divine answer to the carefulness or anxieties that threaten to fill our hearts and minds. And I told you last week that this was one of three prescriptions that we're going to see over these next three weeks, now two weeks, as it relates to this nature of, of being careful, of being anxious, of being fearful, uh, of these various um, elements of the mind and of the soul that would plague us, that would hold us down, that would confuse us, that would threaten to fill our hearts and minds. We spoke about the ability by faith to take these concerns to the Lord and said that this first divine answer to anxiety, this first divine answer to these fears and these frustrations is to bring these things before the Lord in prayer, to leave them with him and to trust God then, that he will then do what is best for me. But we also spoke about the fact that oftentimes deep anxieties, fears, frustrations, anger, and such have their root in a measure of self-focus. That when I have my mind on myself, when I'm using my time to think about myself and my problems, the things that I, I, I don't have or the, the things that confront me, when I spend my time engaged in self-gratification, doing what I do as a natural outworking of meeting my own wants and my own desires, that these things tend to be a natural recipe for anxiousness, a natural recipe for depression, a natural recipe for anger, a natural recipe for living in a general context of frustration. That when I turn my eyes upon myself and I keep my mind on me, that it is going to naturally bring about within me these types of emotions. And this week we find a new and a different exhortation as we would characterize it in the scriptures. There is a continuating thought and we'll definitely see that as we go through the text this evening, but there's also a kind of a new exhortation that, that comes with this uh, passage tonight. It will continue along these same lines, however, that we saw last week in verses six and seven. These verses today will help us in mind and in body position ourselves for a general level of joy and a spiritual strength in life. One of the most important things to know and to understand about life is how important it is to have a measure of control over our minds. The spiritual battle over actions, in fact, begins with a spiritual battle over thoughts. We spoke last time of how fears and anxieties in my mind can lead to problems physically, whether that be physical outbursts or whether that be physical health problems. But it is also true that an intent unto virtuous thinking is the basis for virtuous action. And in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul gives us a really wonderful insight into this. In verses three through six, he, write, he wrote this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, 
and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul acknowledges here that the battle we war as believers is not a battle in the flesh. It's not a carnal battle. It's a battle in the spirit. And he specifically speaks here of the idea of bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. A spiritual battle, a battle that is fought on a spiritual plane, a battle that rests in our thinking, in our thoughts. And he speaks of pulling down the strongholds that are erected in our minds, the thoughts and intents which would compete with the things which God has both desired of us and ordained in us, bringing our thoughts into captivity, bringing them captive into the obedience of Christ. And then as I do so, my way of thinking changes. And as my way of thinking changes, my way of acting changes. Bringing my actions into line with obedience to Christ. And thus, through fulfilling my obedience, naturally rejecting disobedience. And that's what Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 10. That's exactly what we're going to be thinking through this evening as well. And so you're there in Philippians chapter 4. Paul has given a number of exhortations in this fourth chapter. Stand fast in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your moderation be known unto all men. Be careful, be anxious, be, 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 be full of cares for nothing. And then, as it were, in, in, a, in a measure of speaking, a final exhortation in this list of exhortations, which we find in verse 8. Finally, brethren, he says, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any pray, virtue, excuse me, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Paul gives us a list of positive elements, which we will speak about in a few moments. But first, I'd like us to contemplate the context within which this list is given. We're going to start at the end of the verse and work our way backwards in a sense. It's given within a positive command. Think on these things. It's an imperative in the Greek. Think ye on these things. This list, as we will consider it in a few moments, contains those things upon which we are called to actively and intentionally place our minds, place our thinking. And take note of the command to think on these things. This word is not just one that speaks about laying our mind to a concept of these things but rather to reckon these things. This word is a, a, a counting or an accounting term. Speaking of calculating, reckoning something to be so. Taking things into account, concluding through reasoning. I count things up and at the end I come to a total, right? And that's the idea. Think on these things, reckon these things to be so. Believe these things to be true. Place your mind on these things and make these things the central focal point of your life, believing, reckoning that these are the things that matter. These are the things that I ought to rest my mind upon. And thus, by doing so, rejecting all of the natural thoughts that would come into conflict with these things. 
It's not a term of daydreaming. It's not a term of theorizing. It's a term of deciding. It's a term of concluding. Reckon upon these things. Conclude upon these things. Don't just lay your thinking upon these things. Decide these things. It's an intentional effort. It's a deliberate act of thought whereby negative thoughts are pushed out and things that are right before the Lord are engaged in by intention. Whereby evil thoughts, wicked thoughts, impure thoughts are intentionally rejected and right thoughts are fostered and are pursued with my mind. Making these things the priority of my thoughts. And this determination is so important in a society and in a culture that is increasingly becoming convinced that my mind is separated from my will. That my will has no control over the things that I think. And this is simply not true. But this is much of what you'll get in society. You'll be told or people will tell you, well, I can't help what I'm thinking. Well, yes, in fact, you can. You can. We considered the call already to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And the call there is predicated upon the notion that your thoughts can be controlled by your will, that you can choose the thoughts that enter and stay in your mind. And take note of that. You may not be able to choose the thoughts that enter, try to get there, but you can choose the thoughts that remain. And this is not always an easy thing to do. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But the point is not this evening whether it's easy or hard. The point is whether it's possible. By testimony of the word of God, if we are going to find within the context of our lives this measure of spiritual success, if we're going to successfully fight the spiritual battle that rages over us, if we are ever going to find both joy and victory in the manner in which we live our lives, it will be to the degree that we are successful in subjugating our thoughts, the thoughts that we think, to the truths of God's word, allowing reality, the realities of God's truth, to overcome perceptions, fears, concerns, anxieties, and emotions. So let's talk about the things which we're called upon to reckon our minds. He says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true. The list begins with the most basic of things, the most basic of exhortations, to fill our minds with things that are true. Truth is that which reflects reality as it actually exists. Do you know how much time humans spend placing their minds on things that don't actually exist. Placing their mind on things which are not actually true. And as we speak to this, we need to make a, a bit of, a, a, of a, a clarification here. When we talk about truth, the world as it actually exists, things as they actually exist, we're talking about what we will call objective truth or what I sometimes will call capital T truth. There are subjective truths, aren't there? Things which are not true for everyone, though we could call them true. If I were to make a truth claim and ask you, go through each person and say, true or false, 
Broccoli is delicious. True or false, broccoli is delicious. True or false, broccoli is delicious. True or false, I'm gonna get some trues and I'm going to get some falses. And when I ask someone, is broccoli delicious, and they say true, it is true. And when I ask someone else, is broccoli delicious, and they say false, it is false. Neither one of those people is lying because the answer is based upon experience and opinion. In, in, in the modern vernacular, you are speaking your truth, right? Which is opinion, right? And it doesn't make your opinion false because it is your opinion. But then if I did another question, and I went through the same group of people and I said, is broccoli green? Broccoli is green, true or false? Broccoli is green, true or false? I expect the same answer every time. Barring some unique uh, thing, like if somebody's colorblind or if somebody, the only experience they've had with broccoli is moldy broccoli or bad broccoli or whatever. Barring unusual circumstances, if I were to walk through the, every single person that, that I asked, is broccoli delicious, getting some truths, some falses, and asked, is bro uh, broccoli is green, true or false, I would get true for everyone. Because regardless of how I feel about broccoli, this is an objective reality. This is something which is absolutely true. My experience may not inform me that broccoli is good, and depending on, again, unique situations, my experience may not inform me that broccoli is green. Maybe I saw it was white, or maybe I'm uh, protan colorblind, and so it looked kind of brown uh, in that sense. But none of those things change the fact that broccoli is, in fact, green. We live in a society that is increasingly attempting to deny the very existence of this capital T truth, of this objective truth. And what they will do is they will conflate opinion with truth to try to convince people that truth doesn't exist because opinions change on things. But that's a lie. There is truth. And so when Paul exhorts here, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, think on those things. The call is that we identify these objective truths and we place our mind upon these objective truths. So what does it mean to think upon true things? Well, we have a source of absolute truth. It's called the Bible. This source of truth informs us that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, right? Here's the problem. I don't believe that. I don't feel that. There's not too many people that walk around actually feeling as though their hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Because, as we mentioned this morning, the human capacity for not just self-deception, but self-justification is unlimited, right? And so I walk through life, and I'm doing things, and maybe those things are right, and maybe those things are wrong, but here's what I know. I had, right, I had the right intentions. Or... Uh, I, I, I did it for the right reasons. And there's always a reason, right? There's always a justification. I can always think back upon something I did wrong and find a reason why it wasn't actually that bad. Because we're very good at self-justification. But nonetheless, if I place my mind on what is true, then what I know is that my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That is true, because the Word of God says it. Regardless of how I feel, 
regardless of my own lived experience, regardless of what my truth tells me, this is true. So what do I do? I think on this thing. The source of truth tells me it's more blessed to give than to receive. I may not always feel that way, but it's nonetheless true. This source of truth tells me that I have a God who will supply all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I may not always feel that way, but that's nonetheless true. This source, that's the Bible, by the way, right? That's the source. The Bible tells me, it calls me to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. I may not think that that's the best option, but it's nonetheless true. The Bible tells me that true joy is found in submission to my authorities, not in rebellion. I don't feel this way. It's not what I want to believe, but it's nonetheless true. And it is incumbent upon me for my spiritual success to commit my mind to these truths. My heart doesn't always want me to feel. My heart does not always feel. I don't always feel. My lived experience does not always commend the fact that I am redeemed and unreprovable and unblameable in, in, in God's sight. I don't always feel like God loves me. I don't always feel like I, I, I am indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And yet, on the testimony of the Word of God, it's true nonetheless. And I need to place my mind on things that are true. And this habit, this habit of committing my mind to truth doesn't just work thus as a means of protecting me from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, which tend to be things in my heart which will damage my soul. It also works to protect me from the lies, as I just mentioned, the lies and the condemnations of the devil which tend to heap upon me sorrows and frustrations which I simply cannot bear. When the devil tells me that God could never love someone as flawed as I am, or when the devil seeks to divide me from my loved ones through offenses and controversies, when the devil seeks to encourage me, don't go back to that church. Those people don't care about you. You don't need to be in church anyway. Just worship God your own way. Or when the devil holds me under guilt for the things that Jesus Christ has died for and has already redeemed me from, a mind which is reckoned upon truth is able to effectively reject these provocations and deceits of the devil and maintain a focus on reality. Again, on reality. Because what reality says is that I stand before God holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. What reality says is Christ died for my sins. He loved me so much. What reality says is that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. What reality says is that Christ died for me when I was at my worst. And if today is that day, well, guess what? Christ died for me for what I am today. Not for what I am when I'm at my best. Not for what I am when I'm having my best day. Christ died for me on my worst day. The basis of love is to be patient and long-suffering and forgiveness, forgiving toward one another. And Christ has shown this to me. And this is what reality, truth, informs me about. So if I'm going to place my mind on truth, it is not just going to, to uh, protect me from the lies of, of the world and of my deceitful heart and the lusts of the flesh. It is also going to protect me from the lies of the devil who would seek to hold me in condemnation.
Resting my mind upon truth thus frees me from a susceptibility to lies and deceits unto which I might otherwise fall victim and find myself in a place of mental anguish and find myself in a place of anger and find myself in a place of guilt and find myself in a place of anxiety and find myself in a place of depression and find my place, myself in a place of sorrow. Why? Because my mind is on lies rather than on truth. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true. Second, whatsoever things are honest. This word is only used four times in the New Testament. The other three times it's translated grave, not like the place where you put dead people, but the word in its adjectival form, meaning serious. All three other times it's used to describe the character of godly men. It's used to describe a bishop, a deacon, and in Titus chapter 2, it's used to describe the, elder, the elders. The elders should be grave. Those are the only other three times that this word is used. All three times grave. All three times speaking of the character of godly men. And then we have this time. Whatsoever things are honest, honorable, venerable, dignified, serious. The call is to think on things which have value and purpose. To not think on things which are foolish, flighty, vain, empty, worthless, unprofitable. To not place my mind daydreaming about things which might be, which may never come. To not place my mind and my thinking on things which only serve to waste rather than to produce. The call is to think on these things, things that are serious in context, things which matter as opposed to things which are trite, things which are silly. We've contemplated in our morning sermons the call to avoid striving about words to no profit to avoid vain and profane babblings which increase only unto ungodliness, to avoid foolish and unlearned questions which only gender strifes. Here in Philippians, Paul exhorts us not only to avoid these silly conversations and debates, in other words, allowing these silly things to come out of our mouths and engaging one another in silly and useless talk, but not even to rest our minds upon vain things, to not place our thoughts upon things which are silly, which are trite, which have no purpose. Avoid devoting our intellectual effort to things which have little or no profit. Whatsoever things are honest. Next, whatsoever things are just. This word justice in our age has been deeply polluted, hasn't it? If you hear the word justice come out of the mouths of anyone who is in any uh, capacity of leadership today or has any sort of a, a platform, that word justice is not going to mean what you think it means. When people speak of wanting things to be just or speaking of justice today, they're speaking about the culturally Marxist concepts of equality of outcome. They're speaking of the, their, their definition of justice, which relates itself to the idea that we're going to strip from people their rights. We're going to strip, we're going to take from people their possessions, and we're going to distribute them among the masses of everyone being regarded as the same and treated without consideration of their natural and necessary God-designed and God-given differences. And this is very different between justice as it has characteristically been defined. This is the difference between things being equal and things being equitable. Men and women are not equal, right? And so they should not be treated equally. 
Women are described in scripture as being worthy of a man's love and care and protection in a particular way, with a particular respect for them as what the Bible would call the weaker vessel. This not necessarily speaking to a woman's capacities, although women are biologically not as strong as men, not speaking to their capabilities, as in women cannot do things, although there are certain things women cannot do as well as men, and men cannot do as well as women, right? But what it is speaking to, the idea of the weaker vessel, has the idea of that which is more honorable, that which is more, uh, that which is elevated in esteem. If we think of it very similar to, and I've given the, this illustration before, of the fine china. It's more valuable. It's also generally a little bit more vulnerable because of the nature of its created character. Men are not called to treat other men in the same way. They're called to treat them equitably in other words, with the same respect, with the same dignity, but it will not play out through the same actions, right? They are to be treated equitably, not equally. I'm going to treat women differently than I'm going to treat men, though I'm going to treat them both with the same amount of dignity and respect. It's just going to play out in a manner that looks different because men and women are, in fact, different. So my treatment of men and women will not be fundamentally equal. It will look very different. But my treatment of men and women will be fundamentally equitable, meaning I will give each of them the same degree of honor, of dignity, and of respect. Though this respect and dignity will manifest itself in different actions. And of course, this is something which uh, modern culture has turned on its head. So that if you treat a woman with the natural respect that we ought to, as women, in a way that we would never treat another man, necessarily. It is deemed as treating women wrongly, right? Because you're not treating them equally. You're thus not treating them justly. It is a false equivalence based upon a perversion of the idea of justice, of equality, of equitability. Ironically, the notion of justice being defined in our society today is both false, dishonest, silly, and trite. And so if we're placing our mind on things which are true and things which are honest, then the nature of justice as it's defined today, we, we're not going to place our minds on that. Instead, we are going to seek unto justice as defined by, well, most of civilization and as defined by God in his word. To call in the scriptures as it relates to the exercise of my will over my mind this call calls me to refuse to devote my mind to this modern culturally Marxist notion of equality of outcome because it's false and dishonest, but nevertheless to identify that which is in truth and in sincerity, in gravity, right and equitable and to place my mind upon those intents. I should always be treating people and circumstances in a manner which is right. I should always be thinking upon things in a proper balance. I should always be seeking to give an equitable reflection in my thoughts toward circumstances, toward people, toward situations, 
toward context. I should judge righteous judgments. I should treat people with dignity inherent in their created humanity, regardless of their differences. I should exercise care to elevate biblical love, biblical mercy, biblical justice, biblical truth. I should seek to reflect God's balance of mercy and justice, reflect God's balance uh, uh, as it relates to the various elements of approaching life and to rest my mind upon those things which are equitable, which are right, which reflect justice. Next, whatsoever things are pure. This word is alternately translated chaste or pure in our King James Bibles. It speaks of a purity in a broader sense. Depending on the context, it's either spiritual purity or moral purity, or even in some contexts, material cleanliness. Simply put, One cannot fill his home with garbage and expect his house to be clean. If I throw garbage all around my house, I cannot expect my house to be clean. I should not be frustrated that my house is dirty if I'm throwing garbage all over it. One cannot fill a fish tank with mud and expect to be able to see through it and see water in there. If I fill it with mud, I'm going to have mud in it. One cannot fill his mind with filth and expect that from that mind will flow righteousness. One cannot fill his mind with filth and expect that from that mind will flow purity. Our society is encumbered with filth because as we spoke of this morning, nothing is sacred. Our society makes a mockery of purity. Media, entertainment, the internet, Even natural human interactions are filled with that which is impure on almost every level. Impurity is unavoidable in an impure culture. But that doesn't mean I have to fix my mind on it. It doesn't mean I have to fix my mind on it. It doesn't mean I have to dwell on it. And it doesn't mean I have to expect it. Men, in our culture, you're going to walk around and you're going to see impurities everywhere. Women, you too. But men, speaking of thought life, which is something that men in particular struggle with as it relates to visual, right? Women have their other struggles, particularly as it relates to emotional because that's how God has made us because God has made us differently. But men, though you'll see the impurity all around you, you don't have to put, dwell your mind on it. These things are going to come across your, your eyes. They are going to enter into your mind. You don't have to dwell there. You don't have to live there. You don't have to stay there. I don't have to fix my mind on it. The phrase in the world is, get your mind out of the gutter, right? And the idea is used to describe when a person is, literally, is, is purposefully placing their mind, taking things that might even have a normal, innocent intent and turning them into something vulgar, right? Turning them into something impure. Anything can become impure, can't it? You can make anything vulgar. But whether... Valid or invalid? When my mind is looking for impurity, when my mind is looking for the implications of impurity in what I see and what I hear and what I do and what others see and what I hear and what they do, you will find it. But in contrast, remember what Paul writes in Titus chapter 1, verse 15. Unto the pure all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. When my mind is filled with impurity, defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Everything becomes tainted. 
If I allow my mind to rest upon impurity, everything becomes tainted by impurity. Because the mind and the conscience are defiled, the most innocuous conversation or interaction takes their mind into places of immorality and indecency and depravity. But to the pure, all things are pure. Now, that doesn't mean we don't know of impurity. That doesn't mean there's not going to be impurity all around us. But what that does mean is that I can interact on a level with anyone in a manner that is pure. Maybe they're not wanting to be pure. Maybe they're not thinking with purity, but I can be. To the pure, all things are pure. I can maintain a purity of mind, even in the midst of an impure nation even in the midst of an impure people, even in the midst of an impure context. Again, not if I place my, not if I go into evil, right? But if I'm pure, I can operate in a context of purity, even among impure people. And so my intentions and my expectations are clean and wholesome and healthy and right before God and others, even amidst an impure nation. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely. This word is a derivation of the word phileo, which is the word for brotherly love, or love manifest in loyalty, as I like to describe it. It speaks of being friendly. It speaks of being kind. Engaging your will and setting your mind upon kindness. In general... Being kind is not actually that difficult if you're intentional about it. The problem is that we often aren't interested in being intentional about it. Setting our mind upon being friendly, upon being agreeable, is not necessarily a natural trait. It's a deliberate state of being. It may be more difficult for some, it may be easier for others, but the Christian directs his mind toward that which is lovely, toward that which is agreeable, toward that which is friendly. He seeks to be this kind of man and woman to, woman to others, but it starts, Christian, in the mind. You're not going to walk around cutting people down in your mind and then expect that kindness is always going to come out when it needs to. If hate is in your mind, if anger is in your mind, if frustration is in your mind, if cut downs are in your mind, if that is what you're thinking about, don't be surprised when you have a hard time in the moment of need being kind. Because it hasn't been filling your thoughts, so why would it fill your actions? So we seek to be this kind of man or this kind of woman to others. Next, whatsoever things are of good report placing our mind upon things which are laudatory, well-spoken, reputable, things which are praiseworthy, placing our mind upon good things, upon things of value and of profit and of worth. Perhaps this concept is best summed up in these phrases, things which are virtuous and praiseworthy, things which carry with them substance. Have you, uh, have you ever role-played things in your mind? role-played how you would interact with someone in a particular circumstance or role-played what you would do in a particular circumstance. I know that as, as uh, um, one who, when, when I was in high school, I was very active in the police department and we were training and we were doing these things. And one of the things that I would do is I would lay in bed at night and I would role-play certain scenarios 
uh, police scenarios, what you would do in this scenario, what you would do in that scenario. And I'd play them in my mind in order to try to bring about a, a mindset by which, okay, what would you do when, when, when a guy treated you this way or when a guy said that? How would you respond in such a way to diffuse the situation, to de-escalate the situation, whatever it might be? And I would turn those things over in my mind. What I am doing there is I am thinking through actions and scenarios in such a way as to invoke how I would want to work through it in order to condition my mind into a certain response. Condition my mind into a certain way of thinking. Thinking on things that are of, a good, are of good report. Role playing in my mind ways to bless others, to be kind to others, to handle others in a manner that is right before the Lord and right before man. Uh, role playing ways to love, to care for, to diffuse, whatever it might be. The call upon us to think on these things. Listen, Christian. This is a discipline of mind which involves you being a gatekeeper of your own thoughts. You cannot necessarily, and I said this before, you cannot necessarily control what thoughts enter into your mind. But you can fully control what thoughts you allow to remain there. You can, in your free intellectual time, direct your thoughts, train your mind into a way of thinking that has that bears the marks of virtue and praise. Now, some, especially among our children who are second and third generation Christians, cannot necessarily relate to the concept of your mind being truly filled with these terrible, terrible thoughts. Some of you can, some of you can't. But many of you have been conditioned from, really, as long as you've, you've, you can remember, because of godly parents and godly grandparents to place your thinking upon things which bear the marks of virtue and praise. But for those who have known the world, for those whose minds have been in the past compromised, uh, take note of this. I'm not saying this is easy. This is not an easy thing to do. I'm not trying to say that it is. I don't think Paul is trying to say that it is either. Just because he says, think on these things, doesn't mean he's telling you it's easy. Doesn't mean he's, he's telling you that there's not going to be battles. Doesn't mean you're not going to have to be extra vigilant. But as you become a gatekeeper of your own thinking, as you bring your own thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ, to the character of Christ, as you intentionally expel thoughts that do not, that are not characterized by what Philippians 4, 8 tells us, and you intentionally, in times where you're not thinking of much of anything at all, perhaps, place your thinking upon virtue, place your thinking upon things which are right. Think kindness into your mind. Think a, a virtue into your mind. Think service into your mind. Think the gospel into your mind. As you submit your mind to the obedience of Christ, you will condition your mind and change your thought pattern to where virtues become more natural to you. And you'll find it easier and easier and easier. And so the call is to, on purpose, with all intention and deliberation, be the gatekeeper of your own mind and so place it upon a place, uh, in a place, uh, uh, place it upon things which are praiseworthy and virtuous. 
And this call takes us in two beneficial directions. The first direction is one, the one that we considered last week as it relates to anxiety. The battle over the mind is a battle which has dramatic implications upon my quality of life. The concept of mental illness is pervasive in society today. People struggling with depression and anxiety and PTSD and bipolarism and schizophrenia. People who seem unable to deliberately be a gatekeeper of their own thoughts and instead of taking their thoughts into captivity, they in fact find themselves captives to their own thinking. To that end, the call to think on these things, to guide our minds, to take our thoughts captive, and to be deliberate in what we will and will not think about is very relevant to people's well-being. To reject thoughts that are not in keeping with reality as the Bible presents it. Yeah, but that's how I feel, Pastor. It doesn't matter how you feel. It really doesn't. What does God's word say? Yeah, but that's not what I've seen in other people. What does God's word say? Place your mind upon that which is true. To reject thoughts not in keeping with gravity, equitability, purity, kindness, and virtue. To reject these things are to reject these thoughts that would seek to dominate me that have no spiritual value. And let me be clear, as we've said, for those that have already spiraled into self-focus, into the destructive patterns of thinking, this is not necessarily an easy call. It may be, in fact, be a very difficult thing for you to do. And I'm not making light of that. I'm not trying to make light of that. If you're in a dark place today, I'm not just looking at you and say, well, just get over it. It's not that easy. And I know that. I mentioned already that as I submit myself to virtuous and praiseworthy thinking, I'm training my mind. These things become easier. If you've never trained your mind before, it's just like if you haven't exercise for a few years and you get back into it. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to always work out for you. You're going to have a lot of struggles. There's going to be a lot of hurdles to, to cross. You're going to have certain days where, you know what, that day is just not working for you. That day your body's just going to say no. You're going to have days where your mind is going to, to uh, where, where you as the gatekeeper of your mind, you're going to fail. And the floodgates are going to open and you're going to have a bad day. But just like with exercise, what do you have to do? You have to get up the next day and you have to try again. And maybe you pushed it too far. Maybe you tried too hard and you're going to have to back off a little bit and you're going to have to take things a little bit slower. And that's going to be frustrating because you want to conquer this thing and it's going to be slow. But slow and steady is maybe what you're going to need to do. But you just have to take it a day at a time, a thought at a time, chisel away one thought at a time, one day at a time, one intention at a time, one idle moment at a time, one intent at a time, and win this battle. If I indulge my own thinking, if I feed these perverse thoughts, impure thoughts, angry thoughts, deceitful thoughts, in the same way, Christian, that it becomes easier and easier as I exercise myself unto virtue, to train my mind unto virtue, the more and more I indulge impure, evil thoughts, the more and more my mind will be trained into that pattern. It will become more and more difficult for me 
to maintain control over my own mind, my mind will control me instead. And I will spiral deeper and deeper into the destructive pattern of thinking. And I will be controlled more and more by these thought patterns rather than being in control of them myself. And so we have to be faithful. And is it any wonder when we think on this that our society, that mental illness has gone through the roof in our society in the last couple of decades. In a society that fills our minds moment by moment with selfish, self-centered, and perverse thoughts, with lies and indignities and anger and hatred, what would we expect to be the outcome in the lives of those who are filling their every thought and every moment with these things? We should expect nothing else than the society that we're seeing. We should expect nothing else than mental illness, as, the, as society describes it, flourishing in our culture. We would expect to see individuals losing the ability to control their thought patterns and thus losing the ability to operate in a manner that is consistent with functional living. Losing control over their own lives. And God help us, that is what we're seeing today, isn't it? We live in a society that not only encourages perversions, lies, and deceits, as we spoke of this morning, but they celebrate, even demand, perversions, lies, and deceits. God has not built us to function properly in such a context. The mind cannot handle it. The body cannot handle it. And so the mind degenerates, perverts, and eventually the will has no more capacity to reign in the mind. So the first application to this is about ourselves and what the world would call our own, quote, mental health, our own well-being. If you want to be right, become the gatekeeper of your thoughts. Second application is as important as it is inevitable. And it is this. We've mentioned it already. What is in your mind must eventually come out in your actions, Christian. This is true of those deep, abiding, destructive patterns of thinking. This is true of perversions and anger and malice. This is true of virtue and praise. What is inside will come out in some way, shape, or form. Paul acknowledges this in verse 9. He says, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me... Do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Paul sets himself up here as an example, not in an arrogant way, but simply in an objective way. Paul tells them that the things that he has taught them and the manner in which he has lived before them is an example of what this kind of thinking looks like. And notice that Paul says, those things that you have learned and received and the things which you have heard and seen in me, those things do them, right? Do them. What is in our minds, Christian, inevitably manifests itself in our actions. Jesus said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. People may be able to live for a time in this contradictive state of functioning normally on the outside while 
inside their thoughts are just filled with perversions and, and, and destructions and evil and hatred. But you can't cheat the system. If you do not become a gatekeeper over your own mind and direct your mind into that which is virtuous, into that which is praiseworthy, if you do not bring your thoughts into captivity, if you focus so much on being externally virtuous and externally functional that you forsake the necessity of captivating your mind to the things of God, Satan will destroy you from the inside out. You're a ticking time bomb, slated for an inevitable fall. But here's the great thing about this whole setup. If I prioritize my mind, if I prioritize my thinking and bringing my thoughts into captivity, if what fills my mind is in fact characterized by virtue and praise, if this is the nature of my thinking, then it will inevitably bear out in the fruit of my living, right? So if I bring my mind into captivity, if I invoke my will to direct my thoughts upon the things which characterize Jesus Christ, then I should expect that as my mind is trained, as my mind is directed toward these things, these things will inevitably become the produce of my actions. And notice the result. And this is really neat. He says, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. It was this phrase that really made me want to combine last week's and this week's sermon together, but time-wise it just couldn't be managed. Remember the call last week. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and so as I yield my destructive, selfish, anxious, angry, fearful thoughts to God, I have the, God's divine help in resting in the peace of God. And then as I intentionally submit my mind to the virtues and the characters of godliness, I will have help from the God of peace to bless the fruit of it in my life. Do you see the parallelism? I mean, I've highlighted it for you, so I think you see it if your eyes are open. How I partner with God to secure my spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical well-being and success is this. I reject fearful, anxious, destructive thoughts. I lay those fears and those anxieties and those concerns I, 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 at, at God's feet. I take them off of my mind and I put them at the feet of Christ through prayer with thanksgiving. I commend these things to God as my helper. And instead, I purposefully invoke my will to fill my mind with those things which are virtuous and praiseworthy with full confidence that the God of peace will give me the peace of God. He will divinely protect my mind. He will empower my actions to do that which is right in his eyes. The peace of God from the God of all peace. And I yield my thoughts to God and instead appropriate his thoughts into my mind. As Jesus prepared his disciples for his death and his departure late in his ministry, he said these words to them in John 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 
This world is filled with cares and concerns and problems. I hope that these last two weeks have not served for you to feel as though I'm minimizing whatever cares, problems, anxieties, uh, frustrations, angers you might feel. I hope that I have not served to try to imply that there are easy solutions to the emotional and mental frustrations, problems, and hurdles that we face within our lives. We are tempted in our minds to be driven by sorrows and fears and anger. The carnal man is driven to drown out the concerns of the day through the lusts of base pleasures and indulgences of every kind, things which can never and have never satisfied. But if you want the peace of God, if you seek unto the virtues that accompany the God of peace, you do have a formula to do it. And I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying it's instantaneous, but it's here. On purpose, fill your mind with things that are true, with things that are honest, with things that are just, with things that are pure, with things that are lovely, with things that are of good report. On purpose, when you come face to face with true realities, true fears, things which your mind will not, yeah, that, that you expel it and it finds its way right back again, that you are having such a hard time being the gatekeeper of your mind and emotions in this area, lay them before the God of peace and let the peace of God rule and reign in your heart as you lay them before his throne through thankful prayer. Abiding in Christ, that Christ may minister unto your heart out of the abundance of the peace which he has left with us. And watch, watch as your mind, full of anxieties, full of cares, full of fears, full of angers, full of depressions, full of sorrows, watch as our bodies, feeling the manifest symptoms of these unsettled minds and emotions, are overcome by the peace of God given by the God of peace. Watch then, as what fills your mind becomes the very things which define your actions, watch as these things change. Watch as you find that those cares and those concerns have been replaced with God's peace. And watch this until you find yourself in a place of joy and in a place of contentment. The circumstances of life won't magically disappear. I'm not saying that. The cares of life won't suddenly go away. I'm not saying that either. It isn't about God taking away all of the problems and instead giving you flowers and gumdrops. That's not what we're talking about. This is about living in the peace of God, residing in a place both mentally and emotionally in, in this arena of Christian virtue, manifesting the fruit of righteousness in our lives by the power of God as we intentionally fight this spiritual battle on the plane that God has ordained it to be fought in, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, casting all of your cares upon him, for he careth for you, filling your mind with righteousness, thinking on things which are virtuous and praiseworthy doing those things which we have learned as the natural outworking of the things which fill our minds. And so living with the God of peace, abiding in Christ, dwelling in the light of Christ's comforting call, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Christian, how are you doing this evening? 
Do you control your thoughts or do your thoughts control you? Are you an intentional gatekeeper of your mind? Or have you left that gate wide open? Do you allow your mind through modern media, through entertainment, through idle time, through self-focus, through, through bad influences, through bad friends, through too much, uh, un, uh, in, uh, too, too much counsel from people who, who, who don't think, think on right things? Have you allowed your mind to be filled with vanity and impurity and obscurity? Or do you intentionally fill your mind with things that reflect godliness and virtue? Your spiritual battle is a battle over your mind. The Bible says that Satan has blinded the minds of them that believe not. We live in a society dominated by what is termed mental illness, the outworking of minds and hearts which are dominated by darkness and hopelessness and depression and frustration and anger and sorrow and confusion. And God has not designed you to live this way. If you are in Christ, if you are a new creature, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you do not have to live that way. God's Word tells us that the peace of God can fill our hearts. The God of peace can be with us as we yield our thoughts to Him, as we fill our minds with His virtues. Take your mind off yourself. Put it on others. Take your mind off yourself. Put it on God. Lay your cares at the feet of the one who cares for you. Deliberately engage your mind with the things that are rooted in truth and virtue and righteousness and watch what God can do in you and through you. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.